Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, once more draw near. Plant this word that we have heard through, from throughout your scriptures deep into our hearts, that we would forever be drawn nearer to you. And in our drawing near to you, teach us, O Lord, that you have already drawn near to us and are awaiting us, that you are ready to receive even when we are not ready to move. And so move our hearts, O Lord, ever nearer to yourself, that our acts and thoughts would come into alignment with who you are, and that we would forevermore love you and serve you all our days. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Many of you have probably already heard me say that in the past. It's a quote from Martin Luther. For on this day, October 31st, 504 years ago, that very same Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Most likely it was the door. Some people question if he literally nailed it to the door or if he just put it up on the building. But nonetheless, that's not unheard of. The church front was the bulletin board of the day. Luther had become frustrated with the events happening in the church around him. In the surrounding area, a fellow named John Tetzel had come in and was selling indulgences to the people. An indulgence was a get-out-of-jail-free card, in essence. It was a little note that you could purchase for a coin or for however much you had to offer above a coin that would say that whoever's name was written on there could get out of purgatory could get out of that place of holding, of, of waiting to be purified, that they could be freed from it and be received immediately into heaven. And all of that was based on all the grand works of the saints in the past. And so Luther's issue at that time came to be with how these indulgences were being peddled amongst the people, that people who needed their money, who needed to be looking to the Lord, were instead looking to a scrap of paper, to a corrupt bureaucracy, that was just simply trying to raise money. They had no care for these people. And so how appropriate, even more so, that this issue that was based on the saints and their merit, this issue that was based on what they did in their lives that could be, then be applied to us, that he posted on Halloween, on All Hallows' Day, or the eve of All Hallows' Day, All Hallows' Eve, right before All Saints, where... All the people would be gathering to celebrate the work of the saints. And that's the named saints, not just everyone, but all those people who had died and had been declared and canonized as saints in the church. Those are who the Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages recognized on All Saints Day. However, Luther recognized that repentance was something that the entire life of believers should be about. Because the people could just simply buy this indulgence that would give them forgiveness of sins, they didn't care about repentance. They didn't care about living a life before the Lord of recognizing sin and turning from that sin. If you could just buy a piece of paper that said, you're forgiven, so be it. It was an easy believism for that day. Kind of like many of us growing up here in the South have heard of the Baptist churches where you just got to walk down the altar, say a certain prayer, and you're good to go the rest of your life no matter what you do. 
There's not much difference between those two positions. Buy an indulgence or walk the aisle and say a special prayer that the pastor tells you to pray. And it doesn't matter what the rest of your life looks like. It doesn't matter if you actually have faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you actually ever repent of anything in your life. As long as you outwardly conform to these ideals, you're good to go. And that becomes the issue. A conformity without heart. A conformity without any change occurring. A conformity, a conformity without conviction in the belief in the truth of who Jesus is. That is what Martin Luther ultimately was confronting. Was this refusal to know Jesus. This refusal to love Jesus. This refusal to recognize Jesus as the Lord and Master of us all. In a deeper way, in a way that goes below the intellect, that goes below the surface, that drives down deep into the core of who you are. Luther was concerned with that. He was concerned with the change that Jesus would bring to us. He was concerned with the reality of what was to be in our lives through the work and life and death and resurrection and ascension and reign of Jesus over all of creation. He was concerned with that. At that point in 1517, he didn't have everything correct. His theology was still wrong in various places. He had not come fully and completely to an understanding of the gospel yet. But he was on his way. I think intuitively he had grasped it, even if outwardly he had, not, he had failed to express it properly. It doesn't take a perfect expression of the gospel to be saved. It just simply takes that deep down faith and trust in Jesus. You might get a piece here and there wrong. I wish I could remember who said it. It's not justification. It's not believing in justification by faith alone that saves you. It's justification by faith alone that saves you. It's simply believing in Jesus rightly, recognizing who he is. And if you don't quite fully grasp that you actually do trust him completely, you can still be saved. But recognizing that you trust him will lead to a change in your life, that repentance, turning from sin, is something that believers are called to do every day. And ultimately, this can be boiled down to another wonderful little pithy sentence. You are what you love. You become what you love. If you love your sin, you'll become more and more a sinner. If you love Jesus, you'll become, you'll come to look more and more like Jesus. It flows simply out of what the Old Testament teaches us. So often you can read in the Psalms or read in Isaiah or read Elijah and his attacks against the false prophets and against the idolaters. And it comes down to the people worship deaf, mute, and lame idols. And the prophets say, You're, you people who worship those things are going to turn into those things. You're going to become deaf, unable to hear. You're going to become mute, unable to speak. You're going to become blind, unable to see. And you will become lame, unable to move. Your whole being will become like that of that idol. Emptiness, wretchedness. But if you love the Lord your God, Yahweh himself, you will be renewed and changed and become the kind of people he desires you to be, the kind of people he has promised to make you. And that's what brings us to today's gospel passage where Jesus is confronted by a scribe. Jesus here had just confronted the Sadducees about the resurrection. They questioned the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought they could trick him with a conundrum, with a riddle. But he makes the point of, in the resurrection, we are all changed. 
Things in the resurrection will not be like they are on earth. And so Jesus confirms the resurrection of the dead. So the scribes loved that. They loved hearing him bash the Sadducees and their beliefs. And so here comes a scribe up to him who had heard this dispute and seeing that he had answered them well, i.e., Jesus agreed with me, so I'm going to go ask him a quick question. He asked him, what is the most important commandment? I think this scribe actually had a sincere heart from where we go in this passage. He wasn't necessarily trying to trick him, this one independent scribe. The rest of the Pharisees who were with him and over him, they wanted to trick Jesus. And they may have pushed him forward as someone like, oh, you like Jesus quite a bit. Why don't you go ask him a quick question? Ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And see if we can trick him. See what he says. But Jesus simply answers him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So he gets a two-for-one deal in asking Jesus what's the most important commandment. Jesus looks at him and says, well, the most important thing is to remember that the Lord, our God, Yahweh, is one. He is one God. He's not multiple gods. He is not just one amongst all the other gods. He is the one single, all-powerful God above all things, which reminds me of the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. There can be no other gods when Yahweh is the central God because he is the one true God. There is no room to worship anything else, and that's what this commandment is now about. Loving the Lord your God, in shorthand, with the entirety of your being. Loving God with all of who you are. That is the great call that is placed upon us believers. To love God with all of who we are. To love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Every week we rehearse this commandment. We rehearse it from the book of Matthew, from the Gospel of Matthew, where he doesn't say soul. He just simply says heart, mind, and strength. But in essence, there is no difference. There is no contradiction between these two events, between these two statements. But we hear this every single week as the foundational commandment of all. It's not the only commandment. But it is the commandment that binds everything together. It is the commandment that links all the Ten Commandments, that links all the ceremonial law, that links all the judicial law in the Old Testament into one law. It's not that you can't parse out some of those ceremonial things and those judicial things and recognize their uniqueness in the cultural setting of Israel. But all the moral law absolutely is built off of love of God. We are called to love God wholly and completely. That is what is to be most important in our lives. That if we want to become like Jesus, we have to love Jesus. We have to love the Father. We have to love the Holy Spirit. We have to turn away from the things that are in our lives that distract us, that draw us away, that eat away at our faith. Because sin does eat away at our faith. It takes away from what we are called to do. And so Jesus tells this scribe, this lawyer, the most important is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So I want to take a moment to break down those four categories. It's not that these are separate pieces of who we are. It's not that you can separate out each section of us and talk about how one is more redeemed than the other, how one piece loves God more than the other. But it's a helpful division that Jesus is pointing out here that flows out of what Moses told the people to do. In Deuteronomy 6 that we heard that they were to teach their children these things, to love God with their whole being. That every aspect of you is to look to Jesus, to look to Yahweh, God himself, and give him all of who you are, all of your love toward him first and foremost. And so we can talk about how there are different aspects in this regard, but we can't act like this can all just be easily separated into little bits and pieces of us. But it helps us to see these overlapping aspects of ourselves, different perspectives on how we love God. And the first thing that Jesus said was you should love him with all of your heart. All of your affection should be directed toward who God is. In our modern day, we think of the heart as only being about emotion or emotional reactions. And our heart does involve emotions. But it goes so much deeper than just those surface-level emotions. I like to think of our affections as being centered in our heart. Our affections are deeper. They're long-term emotional commitments that we make to things. They have emotion, but they have commitment to them in a way that our surface-level emotions don't. Like the emotion of fear when someone jumps out from the corner, around the corner and scares you. That's just a surface-level momentary emotion. But then there's the deep down drawn out fear that we can have when we've been injured in the past that just controls who we are. That's an affection that is driven down deep into us that we have to overcome, that we have to work through, that we have to process in order to not let that deep down dark fear within direct our lives. And so our heart is where those things are resting. It's like Ashley Knoll said, what our heart loves our will does, and our mind justifies. The heart becomes the center where those affections, where those deep down desires are known, where they flow from. What your heart loves, that will come bring forth all kinds of things. And so our affections, all of our affections are to be directed toward God himself, to be shifted to him. Like the first commandment said, have no other gods. Don't worship idols. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Do not take the Lord God's name in vain. All of those things deal with our heart and our affections and how they are turned toward God, that we desire God above all things. The soul is often the place that we think of as being the center of our personality, the center of our being. There is that sense in which it is the center of our personality. But we make our soul so important that we act like the soul can't be changed. We lay hold of God's name. I am who I am. I can't change that. We get what God means when he said that to Moses. I am who I am. It means that God is the unchangeable one true God. He is the one who is always, has always has integrity with himself. That always does the right thing. He is who he is. I am that I am. He cannot change. He is the eternal God who keeps covenant, who keeps his promises. But we in our culture today so easily, flippantly lay hold of that name and say, I am who I am. 
I can't change that. I, that's just who I am. I can't stop sinning. I can't stop doing this thing. I can't stop being annoying. It's just who I am. We excuse bad behavior at the minimum with that statement. But we also excuse terrible sin against people. We show forth hatred toward our neighbors. We disregard the needs of others to keep ourselves at the center. We like to hold on to that I am who I am to keep me at the center of all things so that I can follow whatever I want to do. And of course, we can't cause ourselves to come back to life spiritually before God. We can't earn our way into heaven, but our souls can't stay the way that they are. They have to be changed. We can't be selfish beings in community or that community will break down even outside of a believing community. Just in the secular society, the less we care about others and the more we care about number one, the more society breaks down, the more the individual becomes of absolute utmost importance above and beyond everyone else's needs, the more everything just falls apart. And so outwardly, at least, we need to change some of our behaviors. We need to recognize and respect one another. We need to show care and affection toward other people and their needs. We need to take ourselves, even outside of Christ, off the throne of self. Remove the self from the throne in order to create a little bit more room, a little bit more stability, a little bit more community. But even more so, we need Jesus to re to renew that soul, to renew our personality, to change who we are so that we're not stuck as mistreaters of one another. We need Jesus to alter us, to change our personalities. That's almost anathema in this culture, to say you need to change. Your whole personality needs to be altered by Jesus because your whole personality is one full of sin because my whole personality is one full of sin. Like Paul said, I'm the greatest sinner of all. Each of us should be able to say that about ourselves because we worship self. We worship what we want to do. We want to claim God's name. I am who I am. It's just who I am. As if it excuses everything we do. And we use it as an excuse. But that's not how it is to be. Our soul is to love God with all of its being. All of our soul is to love God and to turn away from self. To turn away from who I am and look to who God is so that who I am gets changed by God and made right with him through the work of Jesus for us. And likewise with the mind, we're to love God with our whole minds. We should know who God is. We should understand more and more of who God is. We shouldn't turn to pop theology, pop psychiatry to understand God, but we should look to his word and understand his word and learn theology and learn because theology tells us who God is, what he is doing, how he reacts toward us and how we should react toward him. Our mind is to better understand God and as it better understands God, it can discern this world so much better. To love God with our whole mind is not to be a super intellectual, but it is to have an intellect and to feed it with the right things, to feed it with Jesus, to feed it with the theology of the church, to feed it with scripture itself so that our minds are reshaped. Our minds become better able to handle this world and our minds enter into wisdom. To love God with our whole mind is to gain wisdom, to live a wise life. It doesn't mean you have to know every single theologian that's ever lived or existed. It doesn't mean you need to know every nuance, every aspect of theology, but it does mean loving God with your whole mind is to love God as he is, 
to stretch yourself to know God, to stretch yourself to understand more and more about God in your daily life, and to be changed by that, to let your mind follow God, to let your thoughts follow after God, to turn all of who your mind is, all that is contained in your mind, toward thoughts of Jesus, toward who God is, and letting that penetrate all of the things that you do, all of your thoughts to be penetrated by Jesus, and to be renewed, and to made right, and to be purified. And thus our minds come to love Jesus more and more. And finally, with strength. To love God with all of our strength means that all of our actions are to be directed toward God. All that we do, all that we think, all that we act, all that we love, it should all be directed toward God, toward his kingdom, toward helping others, toward renewing this world little by little in light of the grand renewal that is coming for it. Our strength is to be handed over to the service of God and neighbor, not because God needs our service, but because our neighbor does. And so to love God with all of our strength means that we turn to what Jesus said is the second commandment. The second greatest commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything I've read thus far about this statement says, well, this isn't saying you should love your neighbor instead of yourself, but to consider how do you love yourself and to turn that toward others, which to me is the very definition of loving your neighbor instead of yourself. If I'm looking at how I love myself and how I make myself the center, and to then to turn and love another is to remove myself from the center and to make my neighbor more central than I am. And so to love your neighbor as yourself is, in fact, displacing yourself as the center. It's not about self-esteem. It's not about building yourself up and saying you've got to learn how to love yourself before you can love others. You do have to learn to view yourself rightly. If you have an overly high view of yourself that becomes narcissistic, yeah, you've got to learn to love, you've got to let go of yourself and learn how to love yourself properly to recognize who you are before you can love your neighbor. But it's almost as though as you love your neighbor, you start ratcheting down that love of yourself, that centralizing of yourself as you care about others' needs. And likewise, if you have too low of a view of yourself, that you think you're so, that you are the center of all that is wrong in the universe, of all the chaos, that everything that happens around you is absolutely and totally your fault, you have to learn how to love yourself properly before you can begin loving another and recognize that it's not all your fault. You do wrong, yes, but not everything is because of you. Others do wrong that affect your behavior, that affect your responses. But in a way, that's not so much learning to love yourself rightly. It's learning to just simply see who you are in light of Jesus. And as you see more and more who you are in light of Jesus, you will be opened up more and more to love your neighbor as yourself. And as you love your neighbor as yourself, you start replacing your neighbor with yourself in that. To love your neighbor as they are one who is made in the image of God. To love your neighbor as one who is central and has displaced you from the center, that myself is not the center of this universe. And that is why we love our neighbors. It's because it honors the love of God that should be planted in us. As we love God and make him absolutely central, everyone else comes to be more important than me. All of my neighbors come to be more important than myself because I want to love God with all of who I am. That means I have to love my neighbor 
rightly. In light of my love of God, I love my neighbor. And as I love my neighbor, I will find myself loving God because it starts with that love of God that flows into love of neighbor, which then flows back into love of God. And I love that Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. He says, he doesn't say there is no other commandments in the plural greater than these. He says no other commandment in the singular. There is no command greater than these two statements, than these two laws that come out of the heart of the Torah, found in two radically different places in the Torah, but he brings them together because they are interconnected. They are, in a way, two sides of the same coin. That if you're going to love your neighbor rightly, you will have to ultimately love God. And if you love your God, then you're going to begin loving your neighbor rightly. They work together. They go together. You can't love God with your whole being and hate your neighbor. St. John makes that clear in his epistles. But on the flip side, you can't really love your neighbor wholeheartedly or completely like you're supposed to unless you already have begun loving Jesus and loving the Father and loving the Holy Spirit with all of who you are. They go together and they work together and they lead us ever nearer to who Jesus is. And the scribe agrees with Jesus. And in fact, he carries it one step further, saying that to do these two things is greater than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices that could be offered. Because once more, as the Old Testament points out, if you don't have love of God with your whole being, none of the sacrifices, none of the offerings, none of the days of atonement matter for you because you don't love God to begin with. You're doing it for show. You're doing it flippantly. You're doing it to try to earn your way to me. And that's not what we are called to do. We are called to love God. And the only way we can love God is to have faith in who he is. And if we have faith in who he is, then we're recognizing that there's something broken inside of us because we need Jesus. And as we recognize that we need Jesus, we come to see that we do need a sacrifice. We do need burnt offerings of some sort. And we then we see, as the book of Hebrews reveals to us, that Jesus is that one true offering for us. And it's not just in Hebrews that that is made clear. It is made clear throughout the New Testament. That as we love God rightly with our whole being and come to love our neighbors, we come to see the deficiencies that exist within. That we are incapable of loving God with our whole being to begin with. That we are broken, we are twisted, we are bent inwardly to love self above all things. And as we are challenged to try to love God with our whole being, we see the brokenness within opened up. We see our heart break open and all the vile, nasty things come pouring out. And we see, I need forgiveness and I need the one true sacrifice who is Jesus. He replaces and is greater and more glorious than any of the burnt offerings that existed in the Old Testament. He replaces all of that with himself. And so to love God with our whole being, love our neighbor, replaces those burnt offerings because they look to God for a greater sacrifice than those things could ever offer. And so we look to Jesus because these commandments drive us to Jesus. And I think that's why Jesus then said in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You grasp what is going on. You grasp that there is a greater sacrifice to come, that those old sacrifices in the Old Testament don't get rid of the sin that stands between you and God. They don't create the love of your whole being and love of neighbor that is necessary. Only the one true sacrifice will do that. And considering that this is in the midst of Passion Week for Jesus, the scribe might be getting to see Jesus be sacrificed for the sins of the world in just a few days from now in this passage. 
He is not far because he is recognizing that wholehearted and whole being love of God is going to drive him to Yahweh for forgiveness and drive him forward through that forgiveness into a new kind of life that we are all called to. A life that is ultimately about repentance, that is turning from the sin of self-love and turning toward the love of God with your whole being and love of neighbor. We are called into loving God with our whole being, but we can't do it without Jesus sacrificing himself for us. And so turn and look to Jesus as the one who will guide you into that wholehearted, whole mind, whole soul, whole strength kind of love. Jesus is the one who will create the pathway toward that and lean into the reality that you aren't doing it so that you can confess your sins, so that you can confess your failures. And the more you confess your sins, the more you will see the love of God for you that will build up and create more and more love of God out of you. And so look to Jesus and know him and follow that path of repentance that leads toward love of God and that will lead you more and more into that love of God and love of neighbor. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.